The scripture today is from Luke 9, starting at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Good morning, people of Watermark, or just people. Uh, my name is Sam, um, and I'll be uh, sharing with you guys today. Welcome if you're uh, new here. Uh, Pastor Tommy is, uh, it's his day off today, so who knows what, he, what kind of shenanigans he's going to get into. Um, so yeah, he's enjoying his time with his family. So, so I'll be, uh, we're taking a break uh, from the, uh, I think it was Matthew that we were involved, and we're going to dive into this passage in Luke. So uh, we'll talk about this passage that was just read. Um, I actually, I don't have the controls here, so if you guys can just flick it, whatever, show it up, that would be great. Um, so we're going to talk about this passage, and we're going to talk about primarily how uh, sort of the disciples' understanding and expectation of Messiah uh, was, and what it means for us uh, in our time, right now, right here, uh, to carry the cross and what that means for us today. So we'll get into that. So let me pray and uh, we'll dive in. So Father God, thank you um, for today. Thank you, Lord, for your community. Thank you, Lord, for your church. Thank you, Lord, for the word. And we just ask, Lord, that, uh, that this time would be used to, to speak into our lives. I, I pray against any distractions. Um, and I pray, Lord, help us to uh, be focused. Help me to be focused. And I, I pray, Lord, that whatever is spoken, it's from you and not from me. And, uh, yeah, pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I have a soon-to-be five-year-old. And a seven-year-old, so it's uh, our lives are always a mess. Uh, they, the seven-year-old, has been asking a lot of interesting questions, um, and you know it's funny because like when they were babies, they're like, "Man, I wish I could talk to you," but all they do is eat, sleep, and poop, and that's all they do. And once they start talking, they don't stop talking. It's like nonstop. They wake me up in the morning, and they're. And, you know, or there's this age of transition going from, like, two to three or something like that when they start having bad breath, and they'll, like, just come into your face, like, good morning, Dad. <laughs> and uh, they know what they're doing. They're little jerks sometimes. But I love them. Uh, but the seven-year-old has been having a lot of um, questions 
uh, interesting questions, questions that I can't answer sometimes. Uh, questions about why do we need money? Why do you need to go to work? I don't know. I don't know that answer either. Um, why, why, do guys, why do dudes have Adam's apples? Um, and stuff like that. But he's been really into and fascinated, or maybe fascinated is not the word, but almost obsessed with this idea of death. And one night before he goes to bed, and this is how he prolongs his, you know, nighttime before he goes to bed, he keeps asking all these philosophical questions. <laughs> he asks, are you going to die? And, you know, like many guys out here, my emotional intelligence is so low. Uh, it's underdeveloped. Sometimes I have to ask my wife, you know, how should I feel about this? Uh, but... I didn't even think about it. I said, we're all going to die. <laughs> all right, for the second service, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but, but to me, it was very logical because I was like, listen. But he, and he started just weeping for me, just weeping for people. And I felt terrible, like terrible. And like I made a mistake. This is, he's going to need counseling. And I said... I said, don't worry, but we're, you know, there's going to be resurrection, but all of us will have to die. And then there'll be, you know, Jesus' the second coming. Obviously, he, just, he just, start, just wept. And so now if he asks me anything, I just tell him to um, go talk to mom um, or just Google it or ask my wife and she'll Google it. So anyhow, sometimes, <laughs> this is a terrible segue. Anyhow, even sometimes the most correct answer is wrong without the proper context. So context, I think, is very important. Backstory is very crucial uh, because knowing the surrounding events helps us to appreciate the fullness of what Jesus was actually saying and what he did. So in this passage, he asked his disciples, who does the crowd say that I am? He asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's not like Jesus was, you know, sort of uh, being a humble brag or whatever, because he knew he would say, yeah, God, I know. It's that he wanted them to think through and confirm their assumption of who he was as the Messiah, because there's certain implications, especially within the, in the Jewish state at the time. So with this expectations, I think... He told them, but also told them not to tell anyone else because he knew that would cause a lot of trouble. And, you know, if you guys didn't uh, read the book, spoiler alert uh, today. Uh, But he knew he had to make some progress with the disciples. So there he was sharing this, but telling them not to tell others because he needed to make uh, some inroads with the, the understanding, especially there's a gap between their expectation of the Messiah and what Jesus would actually do. So, to go back, Old Testament, I remember when I was in my teens and I was really like, okay, I'm going to try to read the Bible for real and not fake read the Bible. And so I'm reading the Old Testament and, you know, most of the times, I'm sure majority of you guys start with Jesus, which is nice. And then you go from Jesus to, and then you go back like, whoa, like what was God doing? You know, it seems like he was this violent uh, warfare God. And uh, 
it scared me. It scared me. And I was just horrified to learn of this because people try to explain to me, you know, the reason and sort of the reconciling of the Old Testament and the New Testament God, but it seemed to me that they were, in a way, like almost two different people. And, and I, in my teenage mind, it was very tough to get around that. And, uh, you know, the God of the Old Testament seemed very far away. Jesus was someone that I felt like I could get behind. It's a guy that I could worship. So anything we look at, we have to look through the prism of Jesus. And as Scripture tells us, he is the full revelation of God, as uh, written in Hebrews 1. So to some degree, you see this God associated with power and war, especially in the older section of the Old Testament, uh, but you have to consider a couple things. First, in the Old Testament, uh, Israel could not rely on their own military power. They had to rely on God. They had to trust God. And sometimes they had to trust Him in a very peculiar ways. And then God would rescue them. However, I think it's also easy to miss, even within the Old Testament, this understanding of, of God and how he is making changes. There's this gradual change who seemed like a tribal God to a very peaceful God, even within the Old Testament. You see this move from just a tribal God of Israel to God of the cosmos, God of all, God of you and me. So there's this traje- trajectory of God who seemed to be into violence and war to gradually showing that that's not his vision at all, that it's about peace and love and self-sacrifice, not military conquest, and, and a picture of God who is for all nations, not just Israel. And this is fully shown ultimately in the life and death of Jesus Christ. We see this in Micah 4, uh, it talks about how God will judge and will settle disputes between nations. Uh, there will be swords and plowshares. Uh, I think there's a... Yeah, thank you. Um, it talks about how God will judge nations between many people. He'll decide and dispute between uh, strong nations. He will turn swords to plowshares. So here is this promise where we're moving away from this war and violence to agriculture... Or to put it in another way, something that will promote life, something that would give life, something that will flourish. So it's not that there, there won't be any more military training, there won't be any more military exercises, there won't be any more chemical weapons, there's no more weapons of mass destruction. But because there's peace, because peace will prevail. So here's this imagery out there that Lord will reign and people's lives will be flourishing and, and sort of peaceful in that way. But this is not a major shift that I think sometimes, you know, we would think. Um, God knew our desire for power and violence, and so he was working in our hearts. He was working through specifically in the Old Testament through the people of Israel to sort of make this shift from who they expected God to be to the person of Jesus Christ. That's, that's a big cap right there in some sort of in their minds of where God had to move them to. So in Near Eastern, the ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, Israelites were very much into the ways of the surrounding culture. You have to think of it this way. You have to think of, of uh, that God had a lot of work to do. So, you know, you have to think of it like uh, not a lot of people like math, but, you know, like you can't just move from addition to subtraction to 
You got to do calculus. You got to do algebra, you know. Uh, I'm not going to go to my kids and, hey, I'm going to teach you guys how to code. I don't know how to code. I'm just, it's an example. I'm going to teach you guys how to code. And, you know, the seven year old's like, I just, I don't, I don't even know how to type. Or, you know, or the, you know, the younger kids, like, I just got my alphabet down, you know. So there are steps. He, he's smarter, actually. He's very smart. But they, you have to work with where they are at and build them up. You can't just move from people making child sacrifices, which Israel did, or worshiping false idols, which they did, to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just going to happen like that. So in in a similar fashion, God doesn't compromise, but he accommodates. Um, He works with you where you are at, And so God's not going to demand that you run a 5K when you're just minimal walking, you know, when you're just barely there. So he worked with the group, and and he knew um, how sort of this tribe, this people of Israel, uh, were into violence and war, and they looked at that as a solution, and he, he was transforming this group. So going back to this conversation between Jesus and the disciples, imagine you're one of the disciples. Imagine you're growing up and hearing the stories of you, your nation being the chosen nation, you being part of the chosen people. You hear how God brought your ancestors out of Egypt through very miraculous ways. You hear the stories of King David and King Solomon, how awesome um, some of the accomplishments that happened as a nation. And despite when bad things happened... You know, Israel repents and God rescues them. So as Jesus is saying to his disciples, disciples as his current reality is, they're ruled by pagans, by a foreign power who do not believe in the one true God. Um, So what kind of Messiah were they expecting? Well, many were expecting Messiah to do two things. I think I have it on the slide as well. First is to restore the temple, and then secondly, fight the battle against the enemies, Israel's enemies. So in many ways, they were looking for a political and military solution. They were looking for a Messiah who is a warrior, who will make their enemies pay. They were looking for a Messiah that will bring justice to their enemies, who would have overthrown the rule. Very much so, I think this Messiah would have been a very military, political, and religious solution all combined. So, I mean, we know some of this is, is accurate because uh, if you recall, when they came to arrest Jesus, Simon Peter quickly took out his sword. And so the suspicion is some of the disciples believe that they were going to get ready for an epic battle to some degree. They didn't understand how or what, but they were expecting some sort of a battle to be waged. There's also historical documents that actually show that in many of the Roman cities, it was illegal to carry a sword. It was illegal to be armed. And so if that means that's the case, if that's the case, uh, Simon Peter being armed, he sort of you know, knew what he was going to do. He was expecting something. This was also around Passover. So you, you have to understand during the surrounding events, the security would probably have been very tense around there. 
because the Romans were probably expecting there might have been a riot, there might have been some crazy uproar. Um, so it appears that there was this expectations, and I do really believe that despite all that Jesus talked about, about him being killed, they were really blinded and focused on this military and political solution. Additionally, it almost seems that they were in constant conversation of who gets to be next to Jesus, who, who gets to be the next, you know, the left and right of Jesus um, in a very political position. You know, you get to sit in the, you know, this sort of royal throne or whatever, and then, you know, James and John, they wanted to be on both sides. And so the, the, the disciples would compete and fight after this, and what's, what's so insensitive that the disciples were asking is usually Jesus would say, hey, I'm going to die. Uh, this, you know, I'm going to get killed. And they're asking about a promotion. They're asking about, hey, how can I you know, get up in the kingdom when you set up your new kingdom? So they were totally blinded by this. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's not a quite, a, quite the right analogy, but it's like you're going into work and your boss says, guys, we have to file for bankruptcy. And your next thing is, how can I get a promotion? You know, it's a little insensitive. It's, it's kind of insensitive. And it's kind of not hearing what Jesus was saying. In Matthew 20, we even have their mom, uh, James, and, and, uh, James and John's mom, coming to them. James and John kneels while their mother requests that James and John be on the other side of Jesus. And so Jesus keeps saying, you have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea the cup that I'm about to drink. And he's telling the disciples, it's not about high positions. It's about this willingness to serve and sacrifice oneself. It's this willingness to go low and, 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 and you know, help the poor and help the widows and help the orphans. And so these expectations of Jesus to be this, some sort of a military successful Messiah, they were, they, they were there. So then this peaceful picture of God, a self-sacrificial Messiah, it was not expected at all. Here's a group of people who wanted justice against the Romans because that's how most Jews expected the Messiah. Except Jesus didn't restore the temple and Jesus didn't defeat his enemies, or so we think. So in the minds of the disciples, you have to think, even worse, he actually died in the hands of his enemies, which made him look more and more like one of the failed messiahs, because there were people who claimed to be messiah before and after Jesus. Uh, there were many of them, and many of them died. So to the disciples, when Jesus says he must suffer and die, you could imagine that this was very tough to digest. You spent three years with this guy that you believe are going to set up a new kingdom. And he kept mentioning that the kingdom is at hand. Kingdom is at hand. They just didn't understand what the kingdom that Jesus was talking about or the type of kingdom that Jesus was talking about. And so your hopes are sort of dashed in a way. And it, it happened exactly like he said. He was put to death on the cross like a condemned criminal in public. And I think sometimes we forget that this was a public death. This was a public execution. Rome's, Rome is saying this is what happens when you mess around. We are the superpower. Don't question your authority. And so it's not, it wasn't unusual to sort of look over the horizon and see 
people slowly dying on the cross because the Romans were making an example of these quote-unquote terrorists. But there he was. Jesus was stating that if anyone wants to follow me, you have to deny yourself and carry the cross. Not only was Jesus saying your hopes for the Messiah, that what you were expecting, totally crushed, he says one more thing that shocks them and I think probably disappointed them. Whoever wants to be my disciple, you have to have the same faith. You have to have the same, uh, you have to deny yourself, and you have to follow me. So first, he's telling them the Messiah is not the warrior king that you thought it was or what you hoped for. So scrap that. That's gone. The Messiah that, you know, are also, he's saying the Messiah would be killed by the religious leaders, the leaders of their country to some degree. They're the ones who's going to kill me, he's saying. And then thirdly, he's saying, whoever wants to be my disciple, you have to follow me, follow my example, follow, my suit, follow the suit. And so he's telling them to deny themselves and follow him. And that's pretty much what happened. It took some time. But the disciples were truly able to see and understand the significance of what Jesus was asking for. Many of them understood only after uh, the resurrection. Early church history and documentation actually shows us that all of them pretty, pretty much died in a very terrible way, uh, except for John, uh, who was exiled to Patmos. Peter, Peter, the one who was ready to fight, he was, he was put to death in Rome, and the manner in which he died, he wanted to be uh, crucified upside down because he felt like he should not be um, put to death just like, his, just like Jesus was. He didn't feel like that was too much of a privilege to die like Jesus did. And so what's fascinating here is that Jesus took something that was meant for terror to something that, that was very ugly to something... That's a perfect expression of love and self-sacrifice. This cross, and sometimes, you know, we don't have a very sense of it. I mean, we, we see the cross, and it's almost like very much blurred into our culture. Uh, that cross was an execution device. Jesus took something that was meant for terror, that was meant to be something that was ugly, that was to bring fear that was meant for condemned criminals and turned it into something that was so beautiful. He turned it on its head for what was meant for evil, what was meant for terror, what was meant for to hurt Jesus, that he was able to use that to defeat the evil and the powers. In a way, he did defeat the enemies, um, not in the way that the disciples might have thought, or how they thought he would have. He defeated, defeated evil by sacrificing himself on the cross. He defeated evil not with a sword, but by self-sacrificial love. So what is the significance for the cross of the cross for us today? But you see, I think through time, this weightiness of the cross, of what happened on there, with Jesus dying on the cross, I think the significance of it had been 
downgraded, have been watered down. The implications have been watered down. Not only that, some Christians, I think, even went back to looking for a political and military solution, proclaiming it as a way of God. There are those even today who sort of preach a different Jesus, Jesus that wins wars, Jesus that uh, defeats terrorists, Jesus that, uh, you know, defeats your enemies. Several years back, I think it was uh, right after 9-11, there was a pastor who was giving an interview. I think it was on CNN or something. And this pastor was saying, let's bomb them in the name of the Lord. Let's defeat them in the name of the Lord. We will make them pay. What they have in common, what, what these people have in common today is this posture of wanting to take revenge, of wanting to rule over others, make them pay. Even with Christians politicizing Jesus, there's a similar conviction which is Jesus associated with God of the power of control, of who conquers and who coerces people to make them submit, using God to enforce our superior values using laws to hurt people. And people throughout history, people would use God to rule over others in one way or another, including justifying, eliminating their enemies. And today, we have Christians talking about this need to advance our rights. We need to protect our rights. We need to advance our religion. We need to defeat the evil in this world. We'll use laws. We'll use guns. We'll use bullets. We'll use bombs. Wherever is necessary to advance the will of God on earth. And somehow, worshiping God became a right and not a sacrifice. It's like we're owed this and much more. So this idea of we will fix the world and take over the world, that's where we totally miss and forgotten Jesus. And in a way, it's going back to this warrior God. These terrorists are bombing us. Let's get back at them, which is such a contrast to what happened Uh, with the Coptic churches just, I think it was like three weeks ago. ISIS uh, terrorists came in, bombed, I think, two or three churches. About 40 people were killed, hundreds injured. And the response was, we forgive you. The response of these families who were hurt in these bombs, bomb blasts, was, we forgive you. These people were trying to hurt and scare us, we forgive you. If you remember, I think I have the picture as well, this incident that happened in the Amish community about 10 years ago. Guy stormed in a school, shot up the school, killed children, and then turned the gun on himself and killed himself. What inspired so many people around the world was the Amish people, their willingness to forgive, their willingness to love. I mean... The shooter's mom, their family, they were all neighbors. As soon as the mom heard what happened, what her son did, she said, I cannot face any of my Amish neighbors ever again. And so it's a surprise when she and some of the family held a private funeral for the, for the shooter. Forty of the people from the Amish community showed up and support, and hugging them, and embracing them, and loving them, showing the love of Jesus.
They let them know that not only did they forgive them, but they were there for the family. I think one of them even actually set up a, a charitable fund uh, for the, the family, the shooter's family. And that is radically different than I think sometimes our own response to tragedy. Jesus teaches us we don't defeat evil by overpowering our enemies, but by taking care of those in need, living in self-sacrifice. In James 1, it says, religion, James 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans, widows in their affliction, keep oneself unstained from the world. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he, he has told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And so we have this idea we thought we're supposed to fix the world uh, you know, by power. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not it. You don't fix the world by overpowering your enemies. God's plan is to use his people to serve our enemies or what we think is our enemies. It's our mandate to not overpower but, and not to coerce but to serve. It's easy to talk about Jesus that will preserve our lifestyle. Um, it's easy to talk about Jesus who will prop up our own nation. It's easy to talk about um, you know, Jesus to make us feel secure and place in the world whatever to align God with our American dream. It's easy to talk about God and how he will bless you and prosper you. And while that's at the front and center in our minds, Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Not only that, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will lose it. Or save it, sorry. Sorry. I misquoted Jesus. <laughs> Forgive me, Jesus. Denying certain things, I think, is much easier um, than denying oneself because when you're denying yourself, it involves personal ambition. It involves your own desires. It's putting his will over your own goals and living for him rather than for yourself. It's saying that, God, you're not just God on, you know, in my mind or in this department where it's just Christianity department in my mind, but it's saying he is Lord over all. He is Lord over all. Jesus tells us if we try to hold onto this world for security to preserve our own life, we'll miss out on the kingdom. So I want to end with this, and community uh, service, you guys can get ready now. Um, when someone treats you badly, when you're arguing with your family, when you're having arguing with your spouse, when you have this impulse to preserve your status or your security or whatever it may be, ask Jesus for courage to be bold, to remember that we're called to love and to serve and to carry the cross. It doesn't mean that we're to be taken advantage of. Stand up for yourself. That's not what Jesus means. Not, not about you being a doormat. It's not about that. But you might also be saying, well, what if I don't have it in me to do just that? I don't have the strength to love my enemies. As you take steps to live your life as Jesus did, you will realize, and if you continue to push, you will realize that you do have the capacity to love those who may hate you. 
you have the power to serve those who may despise you. Because of that, you ha- you be able to find this new depth of love and joy that you did not realize before. Because you realize your life is not your own. And so it's not you doing this by yourself. It's the spirit of Jesus coming over you and helping you and empowering you to serve and love and sacrifice like he did. And so this is definitely not about us just going to heaven, this mindset. But it's about God's promise with Israel and us and defeating evil and bringing freedom through his sacrifice. As we take communion, think about this, because Jesus is saying to us, I'm going to suffer and die, but I will become victorious and love will prevail. This will happen to you as well, but you will prevail because I am with you. Let's pray. So, Father God, thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the way, but it's really difficult. Life is difficult. Um, everything in its own context, but I ask, Lord, that you will help us. You will help us. As we take communion, O oh Father, help us to realize what the sacrifice means. Help us identify the areas, convict our own hearts, O oh God, and help us to realize where we're not living as you did. We don't want to live like the world, Lord. We don't want to live in the same patterns of living in this, this vicious cycle of revenge and hate. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to have peace. Teach us not to judge. Teach us to sa- sacrifice ourselves and love and, and serve others. We invite you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.